0: Elephants, soiled togas and athletic fancy dress. Join me as I discuss Magna Graecia on the Ancient History Hound podcast. Hi and welcome. My name's Neil and in this episode I'm going to talk about the Greek colonies in southern Italy. The Roman writer Strabo referred to this region and Sicily famously as Magna Graecia or Greater Greece. This was due to the number of Greek colonies there and their influence. In this episode, I'll be looking to the history behind some of the colonies, how colonisation manifested and a potted history of the colonies in southern Italy from the mid 5th century BC through to the early 3rd century BC where, well, actually I'm not going to spoil it right now. Before I get stuck into it, I need to do a bit of podcast husbandry. To start with, hello. If you're a new listener, welcome. And for any existing listeners, brilliant. I really appreciate you coming back for more. You, yes, you, are my marketing. I'm a solo hobbyist indie podcaster. It's quite a hashtag. With a full-time job and the pretense of a social life. So I rely a lot on reviews and ratings. Apparently, these help drive the magical algorithms which then suggests my podcast to a wider audience. On Spotify, you can now rate the podcast episodes as well as the podcast overall. But on other platforms, such as Apple Podcasts, you can just review or rate. Alternatively, get the word out there to anyone you think might be interested. I've had some really nice feedback recently, and trust me when I say it does make a big difference. Episode notes will be on my website, ancientblogger.com. And this will include a transcription, maps, and resources used and cited in this episode. On social media, I'm Ancient Blogger on Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, and Instagram. And if email is your thing, then I'm AncientBlogger at Hotmail.com. And just to shake things up, this podcast also has its own Twitter, at HoundAncient. Just a couple of final things before I begin. Firstly, all these dates are BC, unless otherwise stated. Out of habit, I'll probably say it anyway, but just in case I don't, you know I'm referring to BC. Secondly, sometimes there are different names for colonies, and whilst I might reference these, I'll try to stick with one name to avoid confusion, just in case you're wondering why I'm using that particular name when there are sometimes several. Okay then, here we go. The story and history of Magna Graecia is one about colonies and this word needs some attention. The word colonies and colonization carry with them a series of associations which are very specific to modern history. The Greek experience of colonies was different in a number of ways. For a start these weren't mass movements of people orchestrated by an empire. Often they were small enterprises supported by a single city-state. They were also non-military The rationale behind them, I'll come to. But it wasn't a military project, there wasn't an invasion. In fact, more often than not, it was a slow and steady trickle of people to an area which was known about, with the idea that the colony would knit itself into an existing framework of trade and resource. There are instances of fighting, in fact that's mentioned a fair amount later on, but when this takes place, it's more a result of other dynamics in play, as well as it being something which is often an occurrence regardless of who you were or where you came from. The first question, and an apt one when it comes to history, is when? Well, colonies in southern Italy start to appear from the 8th century BC onwards, and not just here. Greeks also had colonies on the Black Sea in northern Africa and Sicily, to name a few other locations. They were also not the only other people to be doing this. The Phoenicians, hailing from modern-day Lebanon, were masters of the sea, and set up numerous colonies across the Mediterranean, as far as southern Spain. Possibly, though, their most famous colony was Carthage. So why were the Greeks doing this? Well, the exact rationale has been debated. It was once argued that an excess of population drove the various Greek city-states to start sending out colonists, but this, well, this has been challenged as just being a bit convenient, rather than being a cogent argument. The answer was probably a mix of opportunism, and some social pressure, as well as other factors. For example, a city-state knows of a good site in southern Italy. This has access to good trade networks and possibly resources which would strengthen the parent city. Now, within that city, there might be those who could also benefit, perhaps a farmer whose holdings are never going to grow and would welcome the chance to increase them in a new place. Likewise, a merchant who would welcome the chance to corner a market somewhere overseas. If you've listened to my episode on the Oracle of Dodona, you might recall the questions asked there, which relate to a new career or moving somewhere new. The point being is that ancient Greeks perhaps moved a bit more than we might have thought. All that was left was for the Delphic Oracle to give its consent, and voila! As mentioned, it doesn't seem that we have large movements of people at any single point in time. A better argument might be that there was a gradual movement over a number of years, a sort of Drip drip effect. There was also the wider political game between the Greek city states. Perhaps a rival city had a few colonies near to one of yours, so you might think about sponsoring another one nearby just to balance things up. This brings me to the link between colony and parent city. It was certainly an important dynamic, as you will hear. Thus far, I've said southern Italy a few times, but what do I mean by that exactly? Well, Magna Graecia is a loose term, but we can think of it as covering everywhere pretty much south of modern-day Naples. This generally included Sicily, but in this episode, I'm not going to include Sicily. It would just be too much to cover, as well as everything else. But if people enjoy this episode, I'll endeavour to do one just on Sicily and the colonies there. It certainly deserves it. Southern Italy wasn't empty. The idea of a colony in the middle of nowhere didn't make much sense. The ideal colony would have internal trade routes, and perhaps a people who were amiable towards the colony. In fact, it could be that the colony itself mixed with an already existing local population. This would benefit everyone. The locals would have new resources brought in, and the Greeks would have somewhere stable. The site of Pithacousae is a great example of this. Pithacousae was most probably a settlement, a trading post, rather than a colony, though there is a debate on this. It dates to the early 8th century BC, and Greeks from Euboea, an island off the Attic coast, were those who were said to have settled there. It was located on the island of Ischia in the Bay of Naples, and excavations there have revealed a stunning variety of objects. A scarab from ancient Egypt with the name of the pharaoh inscribed onto it, an ointment flask from Syria, and closer to home, Etruscan pottery. Here's exactly why you might want a colony or trading post on this spot, and the Greeks there brought their own skills to the table, Development in pottery enabled mass production of amphorae. This itself had a knock-on effect. That's because the two main industries there were perfume and wine, and these took full advantage of this and both grew as a result of being able to export more of their respective products. Consider the knock-on effects this had for both non-Greeks and Greeks alike. More product meant more workers hired. The infrastructure which moved the goods would have been improved, the operational change would have been extended and brought more people in, thus building the economy further. When the Greeks settled across the Bay of Naples, this technology continued to make an impact. The fast-wheel technique meant a better quality of pottery product and more of it. Non-Greek peoples learned this and were able to create a finer product, which they could then export or sell to a growing class who could now afford it. That's because previously only a small group of elites could afford to import fine pottery, but now a greater slice of the population had access to it. And of the traditional style of pottery? Well, that wasn't forgotten or overridden. It continued to be made, which is a good example of integration. And it wasn't just pottery itself, but what was on it. Two items found at Pythagusae had inscriptions in Euboean Greek, a variant of ancient Greek. One inscription on the famous cup of Nesta invited the drinker of the vessel to enjoy their drink. The other inscription was certainly contrasting. It stated, I am to Tatia's Lethikos, may he who steals me go blind. This is some of the oldest Greek inscriptions to have survived. And it's also the type which influenced the development of the Etruscan alphabet. There are a few other good examples of Magna Graecia acting as a conduit for new ideas and practices. According to a study, which is in the reading notes, the domestication and cultivation of grapevines was added to by the Greeks in southern Italy who took different types and mixed them with existing varieties. This was then pushed out to the western Mediterranean. There had been viniculture in the region, obviously, but the Greeks developed it further, particularly in the types of grapevines used. A similar pattern existed in respect of agriculture, Varieties of Greek sheep imported were prized for their wool production. The practice of growing larger cattle was something else the Greeks introduced and which became a standard practice there. And of course, there were the Roman baths. I've done an episode purely on them, but it's considered that baths which Rome became famous for originated in Sicily and Magna Graecia was how Rome got hold of the idea and, well, the rest is history. The Greeks in southern Italy certainly influenced the people around them and elsewhere. So where were these colonies exactly? Here are a few of the major ones and a bit about them. From Pithecuse on the island of Ischia, it's a hop, skip and watery jump across to the mainland, a journey of approximately 17 kilometres, that's around 10 and a half miles, to what's considered the oldest Greek colony in Italy, Cumae. Given its proximity to Pithecuse, it's no coincidence that there was a relationship between the two. Pithecuse was most likely the founder Perhaps the growth on the island of Ischia prompted the Greeks there to set up their own colony across the bay. This new colony was therefore Euboean, and Cumae's foundation date is given at 740 BC. To put some context on that date, the traditional foundation of Rome is given as 753 BC, and 776 BC is the date for the earliest recorded victor at the Olympic Games. A caveat for the latter is that 776 BC wasn't the first Olympic Games that always winds me up. And, shameless plug alert, if you want to hear more about that kind of thing, I did an episode purely on the Olympic Games. Cumae must have been considered an old and important location by the later historians of Rome. Livy, who wrote his history of Rome in the late 1st century BC, had Rome's last king, Lucius Tarquinius Superbus, as living out his exile there. In history, which more likely happened, Cumae showed that it had international relationships when it sided with Syracuse against the Etruscans in a naval battle in 474 BC. Cumae is also a great example of how a colony could become parent to another colony. Around 470 BC it settled Neapolis, probably in conjunction with an older settlement there of Greeks. This grew, and today we know it as Naples. Moving south and along the coast, there are a number of other colonies such as Elia, but it's to the toe of Italy which we pause at, and a colony called Region. This was founded in around 730 BC, and by colonists again from Euboea. Between Region and Sicily are the Straits of Messina, which at their narrowest point measured just 3.1 kilometres, that's just under 2 miles wide. It will be tempting at this point to head over the Straits of Messina and talk about the Greek colonies there. However, as I mentioned earlier, the Greek colonies of Sicily demand their own episode, so I'll just give the briefest of summaries. Sicily was split largely between two factions. In the west, the Phoenician cities, which allied with Carthage. In the east sat many of the Greek colonies, with Syracuse arguably the most famous. Syracuse became a major player in the western Mediterranean, and you'll hear later about how it got on and didn't get on with the Greek colonies in southern Italy. On the subject of strained relations, if we were to head east along the southern coast of Italy and towards the arch of its foot, we'd come to Locri. This was said to have been founded in 680 BC by Locrians from eastern mainland Greece. It was even said to have had the first written code of laws provided by Zeleucus. As you'll hear, Locri wasn't one of the most neighbourly of colonies. Our next stop is further east along the coast and just before the Arch of the Italian Foot. This is where we find Croton. Founded in 710 BC by the Achaeans, a people from the northern region of the Peloponnese, it was a famous location for a number of reasons. This was where Pythagoras was said to have landed after leaving Samos and where he developed his school and where Pythagoreanism started to take hold. Don't worry, I'll get to that later. It was also the home of one Milo, possibly the most famous athlete of ancient Greece. Milo was a wrestler who won six times at the Olympic Games, whilst also holding victories at other Pan Hellenic Games. His strength was legendary, as was his appetite. He was said to have eaten 20 pounds of meat and 20 pounds of bread each day, washed down with eight quarts of wine. That's seven and a half liters. Another story is that at Olympia one year, he carried a four-year-old bull around the stadium and then ate it later on. Bit of a gym bra, I sense, just swapped the bull for a large protein shake. If we were to continue east along the coast, we'd come to Sybaris, and what a place it apparently was. Founded in 720 BC by Achaeans, it became a byword for excessive luxury. In fact, the word Sybarite, a person who is self-indulgent in their fondness for luxury, comes from Sybaris. In the 3rd century AD, the Greek writer Athenaeus documented some of the opulence associated with the city and its residents. This included awnings covering roads, chefs being awarded crowns for their skills, and even other chefs being banned from copying a recipe if it was deemed worthy. Horseplay was taken seriously, in fact literally. Horses were taught to dance to the flute but this backfired when those horses in the Sibirite army fought one from Croton. When musicians in the opposing army started to play, all of the cavalry danced over to them, with their riders presumably bemused by it all still atop. Despite all that luxury, Sybaris didn't get on with its neighbour Croton, and in 510 BC it was defeated in a battle where Milo commanded the Croton army dressed as Hercules. That just kind of makes sense now, doesn't it? And there were actually continued clashes between the two, as you'll hear shortly. Our final colony sits at the point where the arch of the foot meets the underside of Italy's heel, at Taras, later known as Tarentum. This was apparently founded by Spartans, or rather the illegitimate children of Spartan wives. One account has Philanthos, the founder, as saved from a shipwreck by a dolphin, and hence the dolphin became the symbol of the city. Taras had it all probably the best harbour in southern Italy and abundant agricultural resources. It made use of these and as you'll hear came to become a major colony and a big player. As I mentioned earlier there have been people prior to the Greeks arriving and these non-Greek peoples interacted with the colonies in different ways. There were the Samnites hailing from the mountainous central southern region. To the south of them were the Lucanians. They occupied the central southern part of southern Italy. To their east, were the Mesapians, and to the West, running along to the toe of Italy, were the Brutians. What's important to note is that there wasn't a profound Greeks versus non-Greeks dynamic in play here. It wasn't a case of us versus them. Non-Greeks fought with non-Greeks, Greeks Greeks fought with non-Greeks, and Greeks certainly fought with Greeks. Violence often belonged to a wider set of behavioural patterns, for example, to settle disputes, rather than belonging to a Greek versus non-Greek axis. Probably the best description I've come across in relation to how everyone behaved towards each other was that it was directed by opportunism. The chance to raid, to enrich, or seize strategic control of an area was really what drove many actions and outcomes. And any student of ancient Greece will recognise just how capricious Greek cities could be to each other. It was all of this, plus a bunch of non-Greeks acting in a similar way. It was, well, a mixture of mean girls, meets a Jerry Springer feuding family food fight. Aside from making me feel old, this analogy is quite apt because I'm going to kick off my brief history with the end of a long-running feud between two colonies. As mentioned, Croton and Sybaris had fought in 510 BC with Croton victorious. This continued through the early half of the 5th century with Sybaris suffering numerous defeats. Around 446 things came to a head and Sybaris appealed to help From the wider Greek community. Athens responded and sent settlers to reset things and hopefully prevent any more fighting. Unfortunately, this failed to work largely because the Sybarites kept falling out with the new settlers. Eventually, they left to found a new colony called Sybaris on the Trace. What followed next was an ingenious solution the founding of a new colony called Thury near to what had been Sybaris, but also not be done by one or two cities, but be a pan-Hellenic colony to showcase cooperation amongst the Greeks. The person behind this was the Athenian politician Pericles. Nothing in this new colony would be left to chance. The layout of it was designed by Hippodamus, who had set out Athens' new harbour, the Piraeus. The philosopher Protagoras was said to have drafted the laws. Even the celebrities of their day, such as Herodotus, were added as founders. Perhaps the idea of Greeks working together was a tad idealistic, but it was needed. In the Greek mainland, tensions were running high, and within southern Italy, Polybius wrote of sizable unrest caused by Pythagorean communities. Pythagoras had been dead for some time, but his followers had established bases in some of the colonies, and these were just not getting along. The founding of Thury had knock-on effects. Taras wasn't too happy with what it saw as a rival colony nearby. The response for it was to set up its own colony called Heraclea as a check and balance. But elsewhere, other Greek colonies were starting to form up defensive positions. According to Polybius, the colonies of Croton, Colonia and the new Sybaris formed an alliance. And the fact that the new Sybaris had been created in part due to Croton's defeat of it, and yet they were now together in a defensive alliance, is just a great example of how quickly relationships could change. This alliance, known as the Italian League, is thought to have been formed around the 430s. We know little of it. Indeed, the genesis of it is given at a later point by another historian, which I'll come to later. All three founding colonies had Achaeans as their founders, and they followed an Achaean constitution in this new league, so there was obviously a theme there. The formation of leagues and federations was a common thing in ancient Greece, and it presumably made sense to form one at that point. The Italian League, at least in this form, is thought to have acted as a check against the likes of Thury and other Greek colonies such as Locri. It was also around this time that, to the east, the Peloponnesian War had started. This presented a raft of new challenges to the colonies there. How were they expected to respond to it? In some instances, we can clearly see how the relationships manifested, but also shifted. For example, an Athenian force attacked Locri around 427 B.C presumably in support of Region, which is where it had launched a force into Sicily from. However, in 416, Region gave minimal assistance to an Athenian naval force on its way to attack Syracuse. Presumably the colonies of the southern coast were indifferent about being drawn into a war in Sicily, though some colonies such as Thury and Metapontum did provide troops to the Athenians, and there was some support given to Sparta by Taras. At best though, it was a passive obligation. To the north, the colonies were facing a different kind of threat. In the 420s, Cumae was taken by Samnites and the colony of Posidonia itself settled by people from Sybaris, was taken by Lucanians, presumably at this point renamed Paestum. The colonies to the south didn't have to wait long before they would come under attack, at least some of them anyway. By the end of the 5th century BC, a new threat was developing from across the sea and from the island of Sicily. Here, a tyrant named Dionysus exceeds power. Dionysus' background might have been underwhelming. He was apparently originally a clerk. But he was now in charge of what was a powerful city, and seems to have had a talent for ruling. Just as an aside, it was under him that Greeks in the western Mediterranean first started to build siege engines such as towers. The main headache that Dionysus had was the Carthaginian cities on the west of Sicily, but other Greek cities on Sicily were still opposed to him. There had been Leontini, for example, and this had actually been backed by Region. It's important to remember just how close Region was to Sicily. It sat on the shoulder of Syracuse some time and supported rebellions against Dionysus. To soothe things over, Dionysus had sought to arrange a political marriage, but this was snubbed by Regian. The realisation must have been that there was only one recourse left. War. In the late 390s, Dionysus launched an invasion with Regian as his main target. For Diodorus Siculus, a historian of the 1st century BC, this was when the Italian League was originally formed. It was a coalition of Greek colonies against Dionysus. And as you've seen, this contradicts the earlier date given by Polybius. However, there is a good argument which may explain this. Simply put, there were two versions of the Italian League, perhaps separate or not, and these related to separate challenges. The first version was a response to the growing power of Locri and Thuri felt by those Achaean colonies. The second, perhaps an offshoot or reorientation of the original Italian League was to provide a defence against Dionysus. As to who belonged to that second league or second version of the Italian League, well, we can be confident that both Croton, Colonia and Regian were members. But not all Greek colonies were members, and in fact some were likely acting against the Italian League. Take Locri, who had formed an alliance with Dionysus in 390 BC. It might also have helped that Dionysus' wife came from that city. Likewise, Taras, they'd enjoyed close links for Syracuse for some time, so were most likely indifferent it was unlikely that they would have sent troops against the invading tyrant. Dionysus also made an alliance with the Lucanians. Earlier I mentioned how alliances didn't fall in line with the Greek versus non-Greek axis. So here, in Get Ready, we have a Greek from Sicily making war on other Greeks whilst allying with non-Romans against said Greeks, and other Greeks sitting on the sidelines or offering support against a League of Greeks. Yeah, I need to sit down as well. In the Battle of the Eleporous River, the Italian League suffered a huge defeat against Dionysus. Regian then fell to him in 387, and in 379 Croton was taken as well. But Dionysus didn't pursue any kind of empire building. In fact, after his victory at the Eleporous River, he had released all the captives he took. This points to a policy of stabilising the region and pacifying it by winning goodwill, as well as victories. Dionysus died in 367 BC, but with both Regium and Croton out of the picture, the leadership of the Greek colonies, and presumably whatever form the Italian League now took, was up for grabs, and Taras seized the opportunity. It was presumably under the auspices of the leadership of the Italian League that Taras started to flex its military muscle. The first manifestation of this was hiring a mercenary army in 342 BC to counter the growing Lucanian influence in the area. Given the depletion of the Italian League as a military force, perhaps the Lucanians sensed an opportunity. The choice of mercenary army seems practical. Taras could afford it, and the Italian League hadn't covered itself in glory in the military context. Added to this was the issue of citizen men, who had the levers of power in their respective cities. This resource was worth protecting, and Taras had known what might happen if a large number of them were lost. In the early 5th century BC, it had suffered a defeat in which a large number of the elites had died. This changed the social structure there to the extent that it moved from being what must have been an oligarchy to a democracy. You can only imagine how Sparta felt about that. Better then, to employ professionals who were better trained and whose loss wouldn't be felt in the political and economic context of the cities. The first mercenary hired was a king of Sparta, no less. In 342, Archidamus III was called upon with a mercenary army to help counter those Lucanians. His success was brought short when he was killed in battle in 338 BC. Following this, Taras employed Alexander of Epirus, or Alexander Molossus. Alexander had pedigree. His nephew was Alexander the Great, and he certainly shared his more famous namesake's desire for empire building. Here, then, we meet a problem. What if the mercenary general you hire decides that southern Italy looks very, very nice? In fact, so nice, he might want to carve out a kingdom there. It's been argued that this nearly did. Whilst employed to defend Thury against Brutians, the mercenary general started to forge close links there. Tensions with Taras started to grow, and rumours were that he planned to move the seat of the Italian League to Thury. Presumably, here he'd conduct a court with Taras increasingly isolated. We'll never know because Alexander was killed in 331 BC. And according to Livy, as he lay dying of his wounds, he compared his own successes with that of his famous nephews and concluded that his nephew's victories were easier as he had merely faced effeminate Easterners. Well, that's a whole new level of bitterness right there. Taras continued with its poor recruitment policy. The third mercenary hired at the end of the 4th century BC was the Spartan Cleonomus another effective general, but yet another one who was looking to create an empire. Diodorus Siculus commented that Cleonymus acted in a distinctly unspartan way, and an example given is the general gaining access to a rival city of Metapontum under the impression of a diplomatic visit, before sacking it and taking 200 women as hostages. Eventually Cleonymus outstayed his welcome and was forced out, though not without some effort on the part of Taras, and more or less everyone else. The latter part of the 4th century BC hadn't just been a tale of bad recruitment on the part of Taras. Aside from some bad guests, southern Italy was experiencing attention from elsewhere, and this wasn't from overseas. Another faction was making steps southwards, one which would become a huge influence in southern Italy. You guessed it, it's time for Rome. It wasn't that Rome was this brand new entity It was more that it was a number of peoples, factions and cities to the north of the Greek colonies. There were many at this time. But in the second half of the 4th century BC, Rome had started to expand to the south. Its main concern, in fact we can think of it as a buffer, were the Samnites. As I mentioned earlier, these people occupied the area north of the Lucanians. Rome had tried to expand into the rich lands of Campania but needed to secure the land of the Samnites first, or at least truce with the Samnites, or at least victory over the Samnites. And this took the form of three wars, which took place from the mid 4th century BC to the early 3rd century BC, with the Samnites finally defeated. This presumably increased Rome's reputation with the southern colonies who heard about this. In 284 BC, Thury needed help with the Lucanians again, but rather than ask Taras, it turned to Rome, which duly agreed. There's little chance that any of this occurred without the understanding of the consequences. Thury, as you've heard, wasn't a huge fan of Taras, so possibly welcomed the chance to do a bit of stirring. Rome also must have realised that it was overstepping the line, but that's Rome for you. In 282 BC, Thury went further and requested more Roman support. The outcome was another Roman victory against the Lucanians, enhancing its reputation further and a Roman garrison there. This possibly was more about keeping the pro-Roman nobles in the city safe as much as anything else, but it was another real blow to the pride and reputation of Taras. It wouldn't be long till Taras could exact revenge on Rome. A small Roman fleet soon appeared near its harbour. Whether this naval force had strayed off course or not mattered little, Rome had infringed on its territory, and with only a handful of ships. Taras was quick to send out a naval force which intercepted and defeated the Romans. Following this, Rome sent an embassy to Taras to discuss the return of the Roman prisoners, and this included an ex consul called Postimius Megalus. Throughout the visit, the embassy was mocked, particularly its attempts to speak Greek, or rather its Greek accent. The coup de grace was provided not by a Tarentine official, but by a drunk with the nickname Half Bottle. Following a meeting, Megellus walked past Half Bottle, who emptied the contents of either his bladder or bowels onto the ex consul's toga. When Megellus returned to Rome, war was declared. Taras had no standing army, so they turned to their old practice of hiring experienced generals and mercenary armies. This time, they chose a general who became famous and was instrumental in more ways than one. His name was Pyrrhus. He had a very credible career up until this point, having fought in the Diadakoi, the Wars of the Successors, basically the fallout after Alexander the Great's death in 323 BC. His experience was in the East, and he brought with him not only this, but something which hadn't been used before on the battlefield of the Western Mediterranean the war elephant. These were most likely the Asiatic variety and had been a feature of armies fighting in the Wars of the Successors. In fact, Pyrrhus had been present at the Battle of Ipsus in 301 BC, where elephants had inadvertently played a crucial role. War elephants weren't ever that effective in the Mediterranean, but they were expensive, and so they became a bit of a statement unit in an army, though as you'll hear, they were initially effective against Romans, who had never encountered them, and who nicknamed them Lucanian oxen. Pyrrhus' campaign with Rome is a Minnesota in itself, perhaps I'll put it on the to-do list. But to summarise, he fought Rome in three battles. In 280, he defeated them at Heraclea, with his elephants causing chaos amongst the Roman cavalry, the horses being terrified of them. At Asculum in 279, he won again, though only just. Though the Romans were technically an amateur army, they had experience of fighting the Samnites, as well as other campaigns, so actually not too bad. Pyrrhus mercenaries, though technically of a better quality, suffered from attrition, Rome could be defeated and then draw on more reserves, which, really, if you had a mercenary army, wasn't always the option. You couldn't as easily replace those high-quality troops. We do have a record of a census done around 280 BC, and that gave the number of citizens able to serve in the Roman military at around the 270,000 mark. Something which would become a hallmark of Rome was that it could seemingly levy endless numbers of troops. This attrition of Pyrrhus's army in the face of this challenge was presumably behind Pyrrhus's famous comment following his victory at Asculum. If we are victorious in one more battle with the Romans, we shall be ruined. And this led to the term Pyrrhic victory, which is where a victory comes at a huge cost to the winner, which almost negates the fact that it won. Between the third battle with Rome, Pyrrhus decided to take a contract from the Greek colonies on Sicily to help against the Carthaginian cities there. This he did, and as a nice bit of trivia, it was from this encounter that Carthage was inspired to start using elephants in its army, though the species used was a smaller variety local to North Africa. In 275 BC, he returned and fought a final battle against Rome at Beneventum. This time he lost, and with the opportunities in the Greek mainland, Pyrrhus decided to give up on Rome and pursue his ambitions there. Back at Taras, there was a garrison left by Pyrrhus and commanded by Milo, one of Pyrrhus's trusted officers. This initially supplied some stability, but elsewhere in southern Greece the landscape was rapidly changing. In 277 BC, Rome had taken Croton and Locris. By this point, Regium too had a Roman garrison. Taras seems to have stayed non-Roman mainly due to the garrison there, but also because Pyrrhus may have realised how valuable it was. But in 272, Pyrrhus was killed. His death was as eventful as his life. He'd been besieging the city of Argos, and attempted to sneak in a force which included an elephant. Yeah, you heard that correctly. Stealth and massive pachyderms aren't good bedfellows, and soon the alarm went up, which led to that thing an invading army always dreaded, street fighting. A few reasons why this is, is, well, firstly, the invading force don't know the layout of the streets and are easily ambushed. Secondly, you're often facing heavy objects being thrown at you from people on the roofs. And the story goes that an old woman landed a roof tile on the head of Pyrrhus, which either killed him or knocked him out, at which point he was killed. Upon hearing of the death of Pyrrhus, the garrison at Taras realised there was little point in being there any anymore. And in 272 BC, they negotiated a departure which allowed the Romans in. It's at this point which Rome had taken the key points of southern Italy and could claim it as certainly within their remit. But this didn't mean it was all shades of Rome here. By the end of the century, a certain Hannibal would be up to mischief here, trying to unpick the alliances Rome had and having some success. Rome's conquest of the Italian peninsula is sometimes seen as an absolute thing, a conquest here and then that resulting in immediate subjugation. But the, let's call it Romanization of southern Italy was a much more gradual process and southern Italy retained its Greek influence even through and passed into the imperial period. What I've tried to do is take you up to the point where Rome can first claim to have some form of control there. And with that, I come to the end of the episode. I hope you've enjoyed listening how the Greek colonies manifested in southern Italy and the types of interactions they had with themselves, with each other, that kind of thing, and some of the trivia, oh, and that brief history. If you've enjoyed it, let me know. It's always great to hear from you. More importantly, though, until next time, take care and keep safe.